Financial institutions are struggling to move fast enough to compete with new players. Their legacy tech and processes are holding them back. But there is an answer. Our new report, titled Rebuilding Financial Services from the Inside, is a comprehensive guide to what tech teams in financial institutions are thinking and what they want the rest of the business to understand to help them move forward. Head to bit.ly forward slash 11FS Rebuild to download it now. Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Sarah Kajanski. In today's episode, we want to revisit open finance. Earlier this year, we produced an After Dark event which focused on open finance, but since then, the FCA has released the feedback it got from the industry from the call for input it issued in December 2019. We've now gathered some of the greatest minds in the industry to discuss the outcome of that, talk about the concerns identified by the FCI, and also how can we maximize the potential of open finance. So to delve deep into this, I'm joined by some fantastic guests. First up, and making a much welcome return, we have Alan Ainsworth, Head of Policy, Legal and External Communications at the Open Banking Implementation Entity. (laughs) How are you doing today, Alan? I'm good, thank you. That's quite the title. It is, sorry. (laughs) No, no, it's absolutely fine. I was going to say OBIE and then thought, oh no, that'll just get me into hot water. (laughs) We're also joined by Sam Oakley. He was Head of Marketing at Bud. How are you doing today, Sam? Oh, very well, thanks. And uh, last but by no means least, we are joined by Andrea Efrapidu, Public Policy and Compliance Lead at Yapoli. How are you doing today, Andrea? I'm very well, Sarah. Very excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. So before we get started, we want a quick fire round, if you like, on why each of you are excited about open finance. We're going to go into that in a bit more detail later on. But can you all just give me a sort of a, a, a quick one-liner or a, or a short snappy statement about what you're most excited about, please? Sam, we'll start with you. I think it's, it's hard to do it in a one-liner, but if you think about the fundamentals of everything that we're trying to do with open banking, it's you're trying to help someone do like one of three things. It's like either understand their position or understand the options that are available to them to improve their position or take an action to go off and actually help themselves get on in, in what they're trying to do. And so what open finance does is, is it, at each point in one of those three things, you can improve what you're doing by stepping outside of what's currently in the spec of open banking. And so I guess the most exciting thing for me is about the kind of all of the, the new use cases that it's going to open up. Brilliant. Andrea, how about you? To me, it's about the competition and leveling the playing field. I'm very excited to see new players coming in, competing and making incumbents uh, offer better products and services, seeing the competitive dynamics change within the next two years more than they've changed in the last 50, hopefully. Fingers crossed. And Alan, how about you? I'm excited by open banking. Just imagine if you could extend open banking into other financial services. We've already got 3 million people in the UK, at least, using open banking-enabled products and services. If you add in all of those additional types of accounts and products and bring all that ingenuity and innovation from third parties that are already out there doing certain things like the guys we've got on this call already, imagine if you have them offering services across the stage of open finance and you get others coming into the ecosystem too. Just imagine how much that can benefit consumers and small businesses in the UK. All right, well, we're going to dig into those answers a little bit more later on, but let's let's start by doing some scene setting. So let's take a look back at the work that has had to happen in order to get us to this stage, I suppose. 
So, Alan, over to you first of all. Can you can you define the difference between open banking and open finance for us, please? Because I think the two terms can be used somewhat loosely and different people have different interpretations, but I'd like to know yours to, to kick us off. Well, at the moment, open banking is about secure access to payment account data under PST2, which is a very narrow definition, but we still manage to create lots of different propositions based on that. But it's giving people that secure, speedy access to that payment account data so that third parties can offer propositions off the back of it. Open finance is extending that from payment account data to all sorts of other banking data. And that's what I would call the low-hanging fruit of open finance, loans, mortgages, savings. But beyond that, into other verticals within financial services, pensions, insurance, investments. So I see open finance as the logical extension of what we've already done in open banking. So with that in mind, given that, you know, we're considering it to be the next step, Sam, sort of from what we've seen so far, what are the biggest wins that we've seen from open banking that we can take into account and, you know, build on as we extend? I think from our perspective, and it's it's probably slightly counterintuitive, but the biggest change that that we've seen is is more of of a cultural change than it is a technological one. So, you know, we're an open banking platform, we're an open banking aggregator, we, we aggregate data through AIS, et cetera. But actually, like, I'd say the majority of the data that's passing through our systems is in the open banking schema, it's in the open banking standard, but it's not open banking data, it's first party data that bank clients are sending us to get enriched and sending it back and that kind of thing. So, you know, if you had said to us three years ago, would that be the case? We would have said absolutely not. But what's happened is that because all these propositions are building up around what open banking has brought in, we've seen like a real um, change in the way that large institutions think about the transaction data set. And, and that's, you know, that's for me the kind of the most exciting change over the last, over the last couple of years. It's a change of mentality then. Yeah. And uh, Andrea, what are some of the lessons that we can take with us from the implementation of open banking? So what perhaps has been less good or we, should we take into account? What can we learn, I suppose? That is a brilliant question. And the best way to frame it is look at the European experience and look at the UK experience. PSD2 was applied uniformly in a way, uh, or it was a, a maximum harmonising legislation for both EU member states and back then also the UK. But the implementation has been very patchy in the EU, whereas in the UK it's taken off considerably more. And in my opinion, what made the difference was uh, the development of the OBIE, setting up a body to oversee how uh, financial institutions, how third-party providers, how banks will interact and setting those technical standards, getting them right, right from the onset and the regulatory involvement. And those are the two lessons, in my opinion, that should be taken forward in an open finance world. Having an overseeing entity and the regulator being there to make sure everyone behaves. And that was what made the difference between UK and EU experience. Yeah, that kind of that one body overseeing everything and tying everything together, you mean? Exactly. Yeah. I think it's fair to say that we've also, you know, learnt as we've been going along through the through the process, right? Like the way that the OBIE and you know, this is just uh, an external viewpoint, so Alan, you probably have a much more kind of 
in-depth knowledge of, of this, but the way that the IE has been approaching doing rolling out new parts of the roadmap has definitely evolved over the last two, three years. Like, you know, visibly from the outside, it's evolved. If you look at the difference between the way that the standards were brought in and then the way that we've handled like VIP and sweeping at the, sort of the tail end of the roadmap, it's a completely different approach. And I'm assuming that that's come from kind of learnings and feedback from the industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, when we started, we had a blank sheet of paper. We were the first implementation entity to do this kind of stuff. And of course, we had, thankfully, we had PST2, we had the regulatory framework, but quite how you build standards and how you develop a roadmap. And, you know, developing that roadmap from the get-go was something new as well. And I think, you know, when, when I look at one of the successes, one of the successes has been having a roadmap. So you're not doing everything in one go. You're doing bite-sized chunks of implementation. And also starting with the big big incumbent banks rather than doing everybody all in one go and focusing on those big banks. Because once you get them right, you've got 80 90% of payment accounts accessible immediately because you focused on the big, chunky parts of the market. And then you can start working on the smaller banks as well. So having that approach too, I think, are things that we can learn from for open finance. I would add that a massive element, we talked a lot about in a way the supply side and how the industry has implemented what the regulators has done. And I would add that there's a massive consumer element to it. And the fact that the UK has prioritized the consumer journeys, uh, consumer protection, as they were evolving open banking, the OBA has kept that in mind uh, throughout the process, has been a catalyst to take off. And I do think we should take that on board as open finance develops and prioritize consumers and consumer journeys uh, going forward. Yes, absolutely. That is something that's come up a lot is, is, you know, how the end customer is, as you say, consuming the services that open banking and open finance is, is powering. And with that in mind, let's go on to the next area that we want to talk about today, which is these results of the, the call for input that the FCA has, has published recently. Um, and they, you know, we've, we've, we've sort of touched on a few of these, but there's been a few different concerns identified through that call for input. So first of all, was, you know, we've kind of already talked about this, is, is regulatory framework in place in order to support support the implementation you know it sounds like generally speaking there is um support for a for a overseeing body and for a roadmap and for a framework do you think that necessarily needs to come from the regulator or, or would that be better off coming from you know the industry what's the best way to go about that i don't think that i know anybody in the industry who thinks we would be where we are today with open banking had there not been a mandate you know for the obie so like Fundamentally, I think the idea that there has to be some kind of organizing body is is a given. I think that whilst there's no reason, I guess that it that it can't be a, a an industry you know an industry body that that drives that. I do think it's very hard for bodies that are funded by industry membership to take properly independent viewpoints on things. And I'm not. That's not. A, that's not a sort of an accusation. It, it's just more a kind of a, an acknowledgement of the reality of where that kind of body comes from. So, I think that there are some challenges in that model. But broadly speaking, like I think it's a given that we have to. That we there has to be an, an organising body. And, and from my perspective, it seems that particularly in terms of minimising some of the sunk costs, we've already got an implementation framework that's worked once, and so we need to be reusing as much of that as possible. 
Perhaps is it something about um, needing an organising body that is separate from the regulator to work hand in hand with the regulator to make sure that the regulator fully understands what dangers might be presented to consumers? Because certainly here in the UK, the FCA cares most about the, the people at the end of it. You know, that's their mandate and, and that's served us very well. But do you think maybe there's more of a hybrid model that could be used here where you've got an industry entity that understands what's going on and can feed into the regulator and say, look, these are the things you need to be aware of because bad actors might take advantage of A, B, C or D or, you know, whatever way around it is. Andrea, did you want to start on that one? Yeah, I think actually linking it back to um, what the FCA has proposed, I do believe they got the right balance. In uh, the open finance response, the FCA strongly suggests that the Treasury brings together industry and regulators to develop the framework. And uh, they're not opposed to the idea of having an implementation entity the same way that uh, the OBIE has acted for open banking. But at the moment, because you have all these different players that are coming, you have insurance providers, pension providers, it's a whole different dynamic uh, and arsenal to play in. It is important that we start at the high level of what does the landscape look like where Treasury is involved and brings everyone together. That feeds later down to the regulator, which subsequently feeds down to an implementation entity per user case or per industry. And Alan, did you want to add anything on that? Yeah, I think the FCA said a lot of good things in in its response to call for input. The term that kind of worried me in there, and this is a personal view rather than necessarily an OBIE view, was the term industry-led. And I do worry, I mean, I read all the the responses in the call for input, and it said that a lot of the things that Sam was saying, you need an element of compulsion. You need to recognise that the incentives for incumbents in the industry are going to be different from the incentives of new kids on the block who want to break into the markets and disrupt the market, which is dominated by incumbents. And therefore, if you leave it with the industry to lead, you don't get very far, very fast. And I think the history of open banking shows that before OBIE, before the CMA order, you didn't move very fast at all. There was the open banking working group. I remember in my previous part of my career, I was on an organization called My Data. I remember actually going to number 10 in 2011. I remember that because it cropped up on my Facebook feed within the last couple of weeks, a picture of me outside number 10. We talked all about this kind of stuff. And it wasn't just the financial services sector that was at the time being discussed. It was all sorts of different sectors. And all the working groups on earth came together and tried to do stuff, but nothing actually happened. To make things happen, you need to have an organization that has some power to compel organizations to do what is not necessarily in their direct and short-term financial interests. And, you know, the CMA order was not in the CMA 9's direct short-term financial interests. Arguably, it hasn't been in their long-term financial interests. It's all about disrupting. It's all about competition. And, and, you know, if you're an incumbent, it's not in your interest to see more competition, despite what they may say and despite what the, the pronouncements may say. Yeah, if you look at the history of our organization, you will see that there's been a lot of work done to push and push and push the large incumbent banks to do a little bit more. And their incentive has been to do what the regulation says and no more. 
And that has been a source of argument over the three years that I've been involved with OBIE. So I do think that industry-led is not the right answer. You need to have an implementation body and you need to have regulation that compels organisations to do things that is not in their financial interest, to definitely in the short term. So they're the two things. I think the other elephant in the room, so compulsion is clearly a big elephant in the room. The other marauding elephant in the room is funding. Who funds all of this stuff? If you look at Europe, and Andrea mentioned, I think, PSD2 in the rest of the EU, if you look at that, the lack of funding of a single body to make this all happen has made it very difficult because the Berlin Group is a bunch of people, very good, you know, they've got the right intention to create standards for the rest, for the whole of the EU, but it's working groups of people who are borrowing time from the organisations that they work for, and that is not the way to get stuff done most effectively. You do need some funding. You do need to put some money into this. And I do notice a lack of political will to put money into this, either from government or to compel incumbents in the various sectors we've been talking about to fund some of this stuff. But that has enabled OBIE to get going. Having that access to funding has enabled us to do what we've done. I think that's something we're going to come back to a little bit later on, that point about, about cost and about funding, because that is something that's that's come up a few times. But I just wanted to address a few more concerns that were, were called out specifically. And we've touched here on perhaps maybe the concerns of, of the industry. You know, how's it going to happen? What rules are going to be in place? Who's going to be in charge? But a lot of the concerns that came through were actually about consumers as well, to, to your point earlier, Andrea. And, you know, how do we make sure that they're they're protected as we sort of build this infrastructure out? And I suppose the first one that, that comes up, so I, I get really frustrated when I see all these surveys that say only 25% of people have heard of open banking and they all think it's a terrible idea. And I'm like, well, yes. But my question would be, which bits of open finance do consumers or users actually need to be aware of and which bits should just happen seamlessly in the background and it doesn't really matter if they know what an API or is or open finance is or what the OBIE stands for you know I, there's got to be a, some sense here I think about what you can expect the average person on the street to, to fully know and understand when it comes to complex financial infrastructure I mean uh, Andrea do you want to go first you know what is what is actually important for users of the end users of open finance to know about relating to open finance? That is a brilliant question, Sarah, because just to put some context around it, open banking came around the same time as GDPR whole wave of regulations was inundating consumers. So you see consumers being told all the time, careful about how you share your data, this is how your data might be used. And uh, they become very aware about all that information that they're sharing. And then open banking, on the other hand, comes and tells them, please share your data. We're going to give you an excellent product in return, leading to all that confusion. So what they do need to know is open banking is secure. It is safe. The confidentiality of the information that they will be sharing is absolutely important you get to choose what you share you don't share everything about you you remain the whole point of open finance and open banking is that you control what you share and that's what it gives you back it's a complement to um, GDPR it doesn't work against it Uh, the second thing is that it will give you more power over your choices you can choose to switch and forget all the technicalities about how does the switching work? Who do I go to and what more information will I need to get? I'm going to save time and it works to their best interest in order to save that money. 
it's all about visibility. What I think consumers are not really interested or need to know about is, well, as you say, what is an API? How does the connectivity work in the background? This is not uh, necessarily what matters to them. As long as they know when they switch providers, that the switch will happen and will complete within a certain time frame, and no information will be lost or shared with parties that they would have not liked that information to be shared. Sam, do you think there's anything that Andrea's missed there, or is there anything else you'd add to that list, or do you disagree with anything there? No, not at all. I think when it comes down to it, people sort of care deeply about the sharing of their data for approximately the 10 seconds after you've asked them whether they care about sharing their data. And, you know, if that's in isolation and you're not offering them something back at that point, then, of course, people don't want to share their data with a scheme called open banking that they haven't heard of and don't need to hear about. Like the point of open banking is is to help people and to allow people to use their data to do things that are going to enrich their lives. And so, you know, when it comes to the the kind of the data sharing issue and, you know, the kind of the, the lack of awareness around open banking, I think that will that will persist in, in open finance and it will be similarly completely irrelevant at the point where you can offer to help someone do a thing they've been trying to do and save them 20 minutes. And as long as we know as an industry that we're doing this in a safe and responsible way. I mean, you compare this to the other ways that, you know, your digital data gets shared and we're coming from a a regulatory first position. There couldn't be a safer way to approach a data sharing protocol than one that was literally born out of a regulator. I think with that, just on that in mind, because Andrea sort of touched on it a bit there and we've talked about data sharing, there seems to be sort of a general consensus that that GDPR might need some work if it's going to continue to complement open finance so that the response was that it's not designed to and therefore is not adequate for supporting a full open finance framework um, and that perhaps we might need new rules or adapting of the the current rules. Do you agree with that position or do you you think that actually the two can be complementary and there's not necessarily work needed to GDPR. I don't know, Alan, shall I come to you first on that one? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not I'm not a big data privacy lawyer. So, you know, <laughs> what? please, if you're listening, do not assume that I'm going to be giving you any form of legal advice for this answer. I but... think that's everyone's response whenever <laughs> asked a question about GDPR. The first thing is, well, well I'm not an expert. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Please don't ask me about GDPR. And you've just asked me about GDPR. I mean, I think, I mean, I agree with what, what, what both Sam and Andrew were talking about in terms of it's about the proposition. And this is yeah, the secure, a secure way of moving data. And I think part of this is about getting our language right, okay? This is not about sharing data. This is about your rights to your data and moving it where you want to move it. It's your data. And so I quite like the way the Australians talk about this in terms of a consumer data right, because this is data that another organization holds about you that you want to access for your purposes, and you decide. Now, Yes, I'm sure there are things that we could do with GDPR. It is highly complicated. I remember when it was going through the Brussels process. It's very, very complicated. And I imagine that individual consumers find it very difficult to navigate their rights and responsibilities under GDPR. And certainly, if you look at the way even PSD2 was created, there are things that we would do differently today, knowing what we know now about PSD2. You know, we know the FCA is looking at 90-day reauthentication at the moment, as an example. We know that perhaps limiting it to payment account data only was not necessarily the wisest decision. And we know also that the way individuals do access that data is not necessarily in this single TPP to single ASPSP construct that PSD2 assumed we have 
technical services providers, we have AISPs providing data onwards to other organizations. So are there things that we know now that we could do differently in terms of regulatory framework? Almost certainly. But is it is it a burning platform? Certainly not. But I'm sure we, we can always learn and we can always do better. All right. Well, we're just going to take a quick break here, but then we'll be back very shortly. 11FS is supported by Banking Circle. Connect to the fastest, most cost-efficient and transparent payment solution available in the market. Brands looking to embed financial services in their products want to get to market quickly, and they don't want the heavy lift of building finance workflows and managing regulation. 11FS Foundry is the answer. It's our financial services operating system that lets you embed finance in weeks, not years, and it gives you the pre-built workflows and smart features to win customers for your platform. To find out more and get a demo, head to 11fs.com forward slash foundry today. Welcome back. So this second part of the show, we're going to be focusing on how we can really maximize the potential of open finance. And we've started to touch on this and some of the things we've learned from open banking and some of the things that need to happen this time around. But I think one of the things that is an interesting question, which I think, you know, definitely relates to what Alan was saying about the consumer data right in Australia, is how do we do this? It's a much bigger sort of operation, if you like, than open banking was. You know, yes, we could say open banking was too narrow, but if you're looking at open finance as a whole, it's very, very broad. So how do we make sure that this happens um, and at a, and what is a reasonable pace for it? So I guess, do we have a phased implementation that's sort of laid out from the beginning? Do we do things in parallel? Do we just need to do it as quickly and get the ground rules down and get it started as quickly as possible? You know, what, what, what do you think about how we make sure that we get going a bit and keep momentum up? I, I kind of look at open finance as the different verticals that you've, you've spoken about already in terms of insurance, pensions, investment and other And the other bit, there's the low-hanging fruit I spoke about earlier, mortgages, loans, savings, that are probably, or in most cases, on existing bank platforms that are accessible online to consumers. And I don't believe it would be massive in terms of implementation costs to move some of that and make it available through the current protocols, the current APIs, the current technical infrastructure and framework. So I think, you know, there are certain things I think you could do in relatively short order, And then I think it's down to each individual sector to work out what that roadmap looks like, and it will be different. But let's not try to assume that we can do this all in Big Bang, but let's make sure we have roadmaps those different individual verticals, and that we don't also try to get every single organization in PSD2 world, that would be every ASPSP, live on day one. We accept that that won't be possible. We did some work in the early days with DWP looking at the pensions dashboard program, And when we spoke to the insurance industry, what they regularly told us was there's 5,000 odd different pension providers. And how will you ever get all of those to go online? Some of them are still using Excel. Some of them haven't even gone onto Excel yet. Now, the answer is you can probably, and I don't know that particular industry sector to the level that I understand banking, but if you took the top 10, you will probably get a significant proportion of customer accounts, particularly if you work on front book rather than back book. So you make sensible decisions about what is the low-hanging fruit, what are the things you can tackle first, and how can you get the big bang for your buck quickly and easily. The other point we do make a lot from open banking, a lot of the infrastructure that we had to create from scratch is already there now. You know, so we have the security protocol and the secure API standards, the FAPI protocol. They're already in place. We have a lot of vendors already in place and we have a lot of technical services providers 
already in place. So a lot of the building blocks of an open finance ecosystem are already there. So we're not making the, the moves that we would have had to have made with open banking that in open finance. It's a it's something I think we can deliver more cheaply and possibly even more quickly than we had to for delivery of open banking. What about getting the different industries aligned? Because one of the issues they've had in Australia is they can't get the telcos to agree with the utilities to agree with the, the finance companies on various things, including, you know, data sharing standards. Maybe I'll come to you on this first, Sam. How difficult is that likely to be? And how important is it, do you think, to have agreed, well, to take standards um, between insurance and pensions and, you know, wealth management? And and do you think it would be a difficult thing to, to get off the ground? I mean, I can also easily imagine it'd be like herding cats, but maybe you have a, a slightly different perspective on it. Well, I think, I think there are a few points to make. Firstly, from the kind of getting everybody to agree from, you know, telcos, etc. I mean... There's a lot of work going on in Bayes around the national data strategy and around smart data, where they've already said that they will legislate to enable industry bodies to compel members to get involved in smart data projects. So there's obviously this, this thinking from the FCA obviously isn't going on in, in, a, in a vacuum. So there are, of course, like the way we, we pull these smart data projects together needs to work across the whole economy, not just not, not just in one in one space, but within one space. And you know, just like just like Alan said, you know, there is a huge variety of technical capabilities, which I guess probably wasn't the case when we were looking at open banking in the first place. You know, the CMA nine were probably all within the same kind of paradigm, at least, of technical readiness to go off and do this. And like you know, like you said, like Alan said, in, in pensions. You know, a chunk of the of the industry is still working off microfiche, so there's still a massive kind of spread of technical readiness to deliver this. Like Alan said, you know, the, you can get a good chunk of that, and we like we proved, I guess, through through the early days of open banking, you can get a good good chunk of the market through going with just a, a few players. But I think I think the main point here is that one of the things that I think we've learned over the last two to three years is that the best way to structure this is against well defined customer problems. So the way we've looked at sweeping in the in the current open banking roadmap has kind of it's all aligned back to there is this customer problem around being able to easily move money around. Here's a potential solution to that and here's the technology that then stems off that solution. And and I think that that there's a real opportunity with the way that we set up open finance is if we can kind of take those learnings and apply that to this new model where we say, you know, we have identified three or four macroeconomic problems that we can really align open finance to and we can go after those most egregious harms first. So we can look at the loyalty penalty in the UK and the and the fact that it costs more money to be poor in this country, which is crazy. And we, sh- we should be able to do something about it. And if you use that as a, as a focal sort of guiding star for, for, for the way that you, you set up an open finance industry, you can then go, all oh, right, well, because we're going after use case A, we need to make sure that the following 30 providers are all providing their services via APIs so that small businesses can get involved and, and, and start creating these, these new solutions. I mean, it, it feels to me like there's a real opportunity to, to kind of properly ground what we're doing rather than starting from a kind of industry first perspective is start from like where are the harms that we want to go off and and remedy and what technology and what providers do we need to provide their data in a in a in a easily consumable way in order to to have the biggest impact on on those harms 
Does, does that make sense to you, Andrea, this idea that you would take an approach of, you know, what what are the biggest, almost cross-industry, I suppose you were suggesting there, there's some problems, you know, what is something that applies across multiple different segments and we take that approach to, to trying to get alignment? Or do you have another perspective on, on, on what the best way is to get everybody kind of moving in the right direction? I definitely echo both Sam and Alan in their views on how open finance could take off. Generally, there isn't a right or wrong answer at this stage. But what is important to understand is uh, there is a cost to implementing open finance. We have the basis. We have a lot of the companies are there. They have the technology. But how do you coordinate them and how you implement? And that goes to Sam's point that you may not need every single player to uh, be ready on day one as long as you have the most important ones and you have a direction on what problems we're there to solve. Are we trying to solve the switching issue? Are we trying to solve uh, information to make a better credit assessments? And once you identify that, apply that, as you say, Sarah, cross industry. And my final point on this is it's important that we get all industries having, not maybe not all the players, But because of that cost of setting open finance up, partial information won't work. If you only have pensions and insurance and then you expect mortgages to come into play two years from now, it won't work because to create a full picture of someone's financial lives, you have to have their main products in there. It's not worth it. Otherwise, an insurance company cannot make an assessment or based on only one additional data point, it's just not worth their time. And likewise, these industries, they interact amongst themselves. And you need to create all that demand for open finance to take off. That makes that makes a lot of sense. The, the value for the for the companies is in having a holistic view of the customer, which enables them to make you know recommendations that help their businesses. If they're making better recommendations and serving these customers better, then they should theoretically make more money from them, which you'd think would be a benefit for for everybody. I think you know there is also a benefit, and this is the intangible piece around open banking, of making the APIs available, making that data available and seeing what will happen. Because some of the use cases we've seen in the UK are not use cases that any regulator dreamt up, but they're use cases that that have emerged because clever people see the opportunities from this data and they come up with propositions that no regulator would come up with as a proposed outcome. And so I think there is, you know, that whole point, if you go to first principles of the consumer data right logic, you end up saying, and I do agree with the use case-based point that that Sam has been making, but you can also get to that point of this is about encouraging innovation. This is about encouraging new stuff to come up from clever people's minds that will solve existing customer problems. And they're in the best place to make those decisions rather than necessarily regulators going, we want that use case and not that one. So with that in mind, and just to come back to a point you touched on earlier, Alan, Who's paying for this? Because um, it sounds it's, it sounds great. It sounds like an opportunities. And as I said, you know, the, the companies should be incentivized that at the end of it, they will be better businesses, and therefore, you know, the, there should be a financial incentive, even if they don't have, you know, the incentive of just being 
you know, good businesses and doing right by their customers. But, you know, are there some segments of the, you know, there are some industries that are going to be able to pay more and others that are going to pay less. So they're going to be different bands for providers. And who decides who pays what? I mean, I don't know, Alan, you, you mentioned it earlier. Do you have any idea where you think we should start with funding it? I think this is really difficult. I mentioned it's the gigantic elephant in the room and it remains one. Mm. We were lucky with open banking in that we had a CMA order and the ability for well, the, the requirement for the big banks to fund the OBIE because there was a competition remedy at stake here. Uh, and that will not be available to open finance because nobody has said this is a particular competition issue that needs to get resolved. One of the ideas that I'm quite fond of is using the FCA levy, that there is a mechanism for making sure that organizations pay down to what they can afford to pay. So the bigger the organization, the more that you can afford to pay towards this. But I'm also keen to say that we say, you know, with open finance, you say this is the base level of requirement. This is a regulatory requirement. But how do you ensure that there are also incentives for organizations to share more than the base level? That can they, they can then monetize. So they can monetize the overall investment in infrastructure by making additional data available to, to third parties. We we are seeing that uh, that requirement in open banking increasingly, where some organizations are prepared to share more data than they have to in order to monetize the investment in the infrastructure. And I think, you know, when we start to look at, and then, you know, we'll, we'll go off at a, at a tangent potentially, but if we start to look at digital identity attributes, I think that's one area where I can see banks potentially being able to monetize their investment by sharing data points that they currently have, which are not necessarily data mm-hmm. that, that must be shared directly with consumers under a consumer data right. And, and Sam, Andrea, do either of you have any, any thoughts on this point about funding it? I think, you know, this ties into a lot of discussions that are ongoing at the moment about the funding of the future of open banking, you know, and there's, there's obviously a complex picture around that. But I think that we should probably adopt some guiding principles, right? And firstly, it's I don't think it's viable to expect an organization to be independent if it's funded directly by a set of people who who stand to either gain or lose through the implementation of something like open finance. So the model that we had through the current OBIE, the, the, the direct funding from the incumbents for me, that feels problematic. I think, you know, Alan's point on the FCA levy, I, I think that that's an elegant solution, not just for the funding of, you know, open finance in it, as it as it might may or may not develop, but also for the you know for the future of 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 an, of an open finance ecosystem, and, and I think you've got to include open banking as as part of that. It makes a lot of sense to me. And and Andrea, did you just want to before we move on? Do you have any final thoughts on on that? Because I I realise I I asked you and then didn't give you a chance to answer the question. <laughs> well, uh, maybe it's a good thing. I absolutely agree with Alan and Sam. Look, uh, it needs to be proportional. It needs to be future proof. Uh, as they were speaking, I was asking myself, well, what are we paying for? We're paying for an entity to oversee the implementation of open finance and set technical standards. If so, then the next question naturally is, well, what are the benefits? Who, who are deriving the benefits? Yes, they're the consumers and uh, probably incumbents, larger firms will be bearing more of the cost on a proportional basis. But ultimately, it's a matter of not hindering innovation. Whichever method we go for, the reality is it's going to be fintech. It's going to be the smaller guys who are going to bring all the innovation. And it's important that we don't unduly uh, penalize them 
just to give them voting power within uh, the implementation entity. So I'm going to conclude here and say, ideally, we want to go as far as possible in decoupling governance and funding going forward. Yeah, and that's a great point to, to make and, and one that I know, again, they've had to address in Australia where the smaller fintechs would, would just couldn't gain access to any any of the groups or any of the systems or any of the infrastructure because of the fees that had been set on access to that to those things. So it's another problem that we've seen elsewhere that hopefully we can make sure that, that we're learning from. But we're just going to finish off now and we're going to go back to, to, to where we started. And at the beginning of the show, I asked you what you're most excited about. And I just wanted to give you a chance to, to maybe after this discussion add add some more to that so um you know Alan I'll start with you and and it's sort of you were talking about extending that open banking technology to, to all parts of the financial you know industry and, and enabling companies to join in from all parts of the ecosystem is there anything else that you'd like to add based on the conversation we've had today you know is there anything you've gone oh my god yes that's another thing or, or there's you know actually no I've changed my mind or <laughs> somewhere in between well I, I can talk for England, Britain, Europe, the world on this subject. So you've asked the wrong person that question. I mean, I said, you know, look at open banking. I'm excited by what we've already achieved. And I'm excited about the possibilities of open banking and look at the opportunities of open finance. But let's take it one step further. I do think one of the building blocks of open finance must be something better around the digital identity space. I'm encouraged by what DCMS are doing around some of this stuff around a trust framework. I think that's the right approach to find some high-level rules that the private sector can build on to develop a digital identity infrastructure in the UK. But as we've got consumers using more and more different products and wanting to use more and more different fintechs, we need to find that sort of holy grail of a single place where the customer identifies and authenticates because the last thing you want is a customer logging on to one of these guys' services and then having to authenticate six different times with different banks or providers. That won't work. So we do need to put some effort into solving this particular digital identity point. No, I, I, I 100% agree on digital identity. I've, I've been asked, I keep getting asked by people in places like Sweden, what do you mean you don't have digital identity program? And I'm like, going, oh, please don't, I can't answer this. It's beyond me. But yes, it's very important and we do need it. Andrea, what about you what's you know is there any particular proposition that's making you um you know is there something that you'd really like to see come to market that you think yes that is going to make me really excited that's that'll know when you know that'll be the pinnacle of, of what we've achieved yeah um something we haven't touched actually and um i thought it's a shame not to mention it it's around access the regulator keeps on talking about it and we all we all care ultimately about financial inclusion and what open finance can do is help the ones that don't have access to financial products or they get penalized too much for having access to these products, get on that ladder and start deriving the benefits of uh, an advanced financial system that the UK has to offer. I think, yeah, and it, we didn't have time to touch on it today, but that was something that was raised from the FCA's call for input as well, was, you know, not only is this an opportunity to extend financial inclusion, but how do we make sure that as we move towards this digital financial world, we're not leaving behind people who don't have access to digital accounts for whatever reason. They don't have access to the internet. They don't have the devices. You know, there are many reasons why you might not have digital access to your financial accounts right now. So how do we make sure that as we do this, we bring those people into the fold? 
Again, answers on a postcard, please, because I don't have the solution to that one either. And finally, Sam, you know, you you were talking about the importance of understanding someone's, you know, holistic position, you know, holistic financial position. Perhaps that ties into this piece about making sure we get everybody on board and everybody included. Is there anything else you'd like to add to that about, you know, what you're excited about with with open finance? Yeah, I think I think the thing that that we haven't talked about is the timing of all this. And, you know, we've just seen 12 months where, you know, I don't think I'm being sort of massively over-egging it to say this has been like the fastest societal change in post-war history. Like the, in terms of the amount of change that's been crammed into such a small time. And it's in the kind of, it's as the dust settles around all of that stuff that, that disruption often has its like its biggest impact. And, you know, as a result of this, like we did, we did a report recently where we were looking at kind of the impact of the pandemic on people's finances. And there are, there are fundamental changes in large macro groups of society that are coming up, that, that, that have arrived out of nowhere. And, you know, our financial system takes a long time to kind of course correct. It's a, it's a, it's a big, complex machine and it takes time to work itself out. And so... We're arriving at this point where, you know, we've got six million people who are saving for the first time, who are sat there right in the middle of the advice gap right now. And we've got a new technology that's, you know, potentially only a couple of years away that, that could genuinely step in and, and, and help like that group of people. You know, on, on the flip side of those people who are saving for the first time, we've got a third of the population who have suffered acute economic shock and need help with budgeting and better access to credit and building out credit files from you know for people with thin files and that kind of thing and right now like this is when open finance like it can really step in and make a difference and so it, it just feels to me i think possibly like the most exciting thing about it is it's it's an idea whose whose time has come and you know it, it's sitting in that in that kind of in that space now where where there's an obvious need for it there's a need that the financial system won't be able to it won't be able to to pivot to serve in a, in a time frame that's going to be useful to those people and then there's a new technology just sitting there waiting to be able to deliver that solution you know that's i guess for me the most exciting part of it yeah absolutely in particular if we look at the fact that those who've been hardest hit by you know the economic damage if you like are those under 35 who are the digital natives who probably are likely to be willing to to come and ad- adopt new digital solutions that are put into their hands and you know as you say after we saw the financial crisis um, after that we saw huge innovation in in lending and alternative lenders come to the fore because you know it was a problem that really needed to be solved so, you know, absolutely, let's hope that the, the result of, you know, one good thing that's come out of the, of the last sort of 12, 18 months is that innovation continues at pace and that it continues to help people who need to be helped. Okay, on that note, we're going to wrap up today's discussion. Thank you all so much for joining me. Uh, where can people find out more about you and your companies? Sam, we'll start with you. I'm Sam. You can find me at Sam Oakley on Twitter, or you can check Bud out at thisisbud.com. Perfect. Alan, how about you? You can find me at Ainsworth Alan on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn or on email alan.ainsworth at openbanking.org.uk. Perfect. And Andrea? You can find me on LinkedIn at Andrea Everpido or at the Yakli blog on our website. Wonderful. And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, do subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It does help to make us better and others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider, or you can email podcast at 11FS.com. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.